The eye you see is not an eye because you see it. It is an eye because it sees you. To talk with someone, ask a question first. Then, listen. Narcissism is an ugly fault, and now it's a boring fault, too. But look in your mirror for the other one, the other one who walks by your side. Between living and dreaming, there is a third thing. Guess it. This narcissist of ours can't see his face in the mirror because he has become the mirror. Look for your other half who walks always next to you and tends to be what you aren't. In my solitude, I have seen things very clearly that were not true. Water is good, so is thirst. Shadow is good, so is sun. The honey from the rosemaries and the honey of the bare fields. Form your letters slowly and well. Making things well is more important than making them. But don't hunt for dissonance, because in the end, there is no dissonance. When the sound is heard, people dance. What the poet is searching for is not the fundamental I, but the deep you. The eyes you're longing for, listen now. The eyes you see yourself in are eyes because they see you. Selections of Proverbs and Songs by Antonia Machado. This episode will probably have nothing to do with you. Conflict resolution. That's not an issue at all in our incredibly divided, fractured society, where election results lead to more spouted hatred than we could fathom, where racial and social division is as pronounced as ever. And I mean, I've never actually seen this before, but I imagine that, you know, relationships are not always wonderful. And the fact that we now have social media to amplify and exponentially heighten all of these conflicts, it doesn't help. So needless to say, we ain't so hot at handling conflict. You know, from the childlike, filterless barbarity when espousing an unnurtured, uninformed, confused, vomit of opinions under a veil of objective truth, but also to the not-so-veiled antagonism that we allow to infiltrate our closest relationships, you know, from politics to marriages, siblings to co-workers, and all of the social and intercultural issues in between, I think it is as good a time as ever to talk about conflict resolution. So we're going to go through a lot of information. I hope to map out as much of the technical stuff as is helpful so we can see the big picture of what conflict resolution is. But I also want to draw some direct components of, of what we actually do with this. And hopefully we will have a practical like representation of how conflict can be an invitation. Last episodes, that's what we saw. Conflict's inevitable. Conflict's going to happen simply by being alive in the world. And conflict itself doesn't have any... It, it's morally neutral but how you respond is important. So this is gonna give us you know, what some of those positive responses like technically look like. So let's get into it. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become a bit more human 
by exploring how to work through our inevitable conflicts well. Now, we went to great lengths to describe conflict. And and we saw that first, conflict is natural. If you have any kind of contact with another being, there's going to be conflict, this friction, this striking together where two different components meet. Secondly, we saw that conflict is not necessarily negative. You know, those natural conflicts that are going to come up all the time just by being alive, those aren't bad, they just are. Your experience of the world is going to be hard. There's going to be conflict. And you have very little control over that reality. You do, however, have control over what you will do with the difficulty and how you will respond to these various conflicts, some minute, some you know, don't have a whole lot of impact on anything, and some are really big. So conflict itself, yeah, has no moral value. How you respond to the conflict does. So very esoteric brushstrokes were made over the imaginative engagement with conflict that brings forth transformation. I'm going to put that brush down this episode because now we need to get into the close-up details of the junk that plagues our day-to-day living. And this brings us to conflict resolution, which is a very technical concept. It's also a very relational concept that we're doing all the time. And so that's where we're going to need to start today with the bird's eye view definition of conflict as it pertains to conflict resolution. And we're going to get into some theory, but hopefully, you know, we're going to make this accessible and practical for you all as well. So let's start with that. What, what definition should we take into this conversation? Here's how I'd frame conflict specifically as it pertains to conflict resolution. Conflict is a natural, inevitable, potentially constructive, and contextual process resulting from perceived incompatible goals or uncertain relational trajectory. All right. Now, before we get into what we ought to do about this, let's step back even further. Why does conflict happen? in relationships with people. So we've made the case that just by existing, two components strike together, there's that friction, it's not necessarily an evil, bad thing, but it happens, it creates conflict. Okay, but based on that definition, why do we perceive incompatible goals and why do we occupy the experience of uncertain relational trajectory? A lot of, especially, the day-to-day conflicts that we have, the, the situations where I'm not really sure what to do or this is not exactly how I would, would have drawn this up, a lot of those deal with this idea that our goals are incompatible or we are actually striking against and moving in different directions from other people. And that might be just perceived, but it actually seems to be the case. So we need to talk about relational dialectic theory. All right, so this is not to say that this is the only explanation for our problem at hand. I'm not saying this theory summarizes every single case of why conflict happens. But I do think this is the most accessible, pertinent, and descriptive 
explanation for what most of us experience. Listen, there are a ton of components to what's going on in conflict. Nobody's ever going to completely define all of those parts. I'm not saying this is the only theory or concept. I do think this is the most helpful, at least in my experience. Anyways, relational dialectic theory. It comes from uh, Leslie Baxter, who, who in the field of communication is highly regarded. Uh, and she's focused on how communication undergirds the experience of dissonance and conflict amongst people. So let me try to unpack this. Essentially, verbal communication is our means to handle the constant contradictions that occur in a given relationship where there are multiple variables and identities at play, which is quite frankly true of all relationships. And Baxter's specifically writing to formed relationships, formal relationships, um, consistent relationships. But this is, I, I use the example of like, you go to open a door and somebody's walking through the door at the same time and that's technically a conflict. It's true of that as well. So you have as yourself a singular person with your own consciousness, your own experience, okay? That's you. But you also have yourself as connected with other people who have their own consciousness and experience, but who together have a common experience and relational identity that shapes each other's experience. That's a little bit confusing, but just look at it as like, on one side you have you, on the other side you have them, but then there's also the nature of the relationships that that is you and them together and that's its own thing outside of you but still a part of you and outside of them but still kind of a part of them this is what baxter is talking about and this ambiguous mess leads to what baxter calls contradictions when all of those circulating identities and experience they they don't fit nicely together Some, sometimes they do and it's wonderful and those are moments of pure bliss and hope and joy and all of that. But most of the time, you and the other person and the way that you see each other together in the relationship as this like third entity, it doesn't always go so smoothly. Now, as communicative beings, you know, which just means we use language in various ways, our use of language and communication is how we try to manage the tension and therefore maintain the relationship when these contradictions come up. Most of the time, this is so mundane that we don't even recognize that this is what we are doing. Like it's so innate to manage the contradictions that we just assume it's normal. But even in these basic actions and situations, we have to say we are managing our contradictions so that the relationship can endure. And, and the examples of this are, are infinite, seriously. Just look at your the entirety of your day. This happens all the time. Like somebody uses a word or a phrase that you're not exactly sure what it means. That's a contradiction. And that messes with how you understand yourself and how you understand your connection with this person. And you got to figure that out. Usually it's just saying, what did you say? Or, what did you mean by that? It, this is happening absolutely all the time. What Baxter goes on to say is that the relational progress that results from this management, she calls this praxis. So we continually generate experience with a person, right? We keep having these situations. We keep enduring them. uh, We keep figuring out how to manage the contradiction. 
and it develops a process for us to communicate more and more effectively despite the potential issues and chaos. And the longer you're in these interactions with a person and the more consistently you engage them well, the better the relationship forms over time. You have this shared history and you know how the other person works. This is called praxis. The various identities that you know we have still continue to have friction, okay? So it doesn't mean the conflict goes away. We still have these opposing wants and needs, but we have found, you know, practical ways to healthily progress the relationship and still accomplish as many of the various needs between the people involved as possible. Now, once a balance is found, Baxter calls this totality. And listen, you're not getting tested on these terms. I don't expect you to remember all of this, though, you know, as I said in episode one, one, when it hurt you, uh, I just want us to see that this progression is something that you actually find yourself in all the time. The, the contradicting opposites, you know, we, they unite, they come together, and our issues are sustainably balanced. And, and by that, they're still going to happen. But we found a way to be in balance with ourselves, the other person, and the understanding of the relationship between us both, you know, those three entities, if you want to think of it that way. So you've got contradictions, you've got praxis, so you know, the process of, 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 you know, finding compromise, if you want to put it that way, and you have totality. The short of the story is that you already know how to properly engage in conflict resolution. If you have had but one healthy relational moment in your life, you've proven that you can do this. Congratulations. One slight problem. These compromises that we make are capable of building a head of steam. And this is actually how I understand uh, the focus of relational dialectic theory. When the pressure gets to a point that our developed processes can't resolve the contradictions and the friction, we have a sort of impending doom as to whether or not the relationship can continue. What happens is as we make compromises to sustain the diversity of the relationship, you know, we, we try to meet all the wants and needs possible while still taking care of the relationship itself. It might endure because we, like the relationship, even with its oddities, are finding a way to make it work. But there's a chance that the tension will keep growing and dissatisfaction will grow. And if it's not proactively and constructively confronted, we will end up at relational odds. Baxter lists some of these contradictions. And I think these are just helpful to consider. And this isn't blatantly about conflict resolution yet. I'm hoping just to paint the picture of what's going on with conflict and relationships. And, and these examples, they're very common. So, so first... One of the main contradictions Baxter notes is openness and closeness. All right, so relational partners, they often expect some openness in the relationship, yet the relationship is comprised of individuals who also desire privacy. So again, think of those three entities. You're, you're over here, the other person's on the other side, but you also have the shared identity that is the relationship. We expect openness in that. We also still exist as our own people. So we desire some privacy. That's a contradiction that, you know, as we go, we figure out how to make it work. But if we let the steam build, 
eventually that could blow up. A second uh, dialectic or tension, you could say, is certainty and uncertainty. A, a sense of certainty with a person bonds the relationship well, right? We know who they are. It creates a predictability that is comfortable and assuring. However, predictability and stability, as we talked about in the change series, is never constant. As people naturally change, the need for difference and surprise clashes with our desire for certainty. And so we want things to be known and comfortable and, and steady, yet we also have this need for adapting to the changes that are happening naturally, but also we kind of have a desire to see things change, to, to break out of the rhythms that we've developed. And that tension is always at play within relationships. The third a contradiction or tension or dialectic is connectedness and separateness. And this one's huge. The physical, mental, and emotional bond of a relationship, it's necessary. It, you know, it, to promote commitment, to, to promote endurance, you need that bond. However, Baxter's point is that too much connectedness can make one feel as if they no longer exist individually. Basically, if you, if you take those three entities, there's you, there's them, and there's your shared relationship, what tends to happen is we actually identify more as the relationship as opposed to our individual selves. And sometimes we try to, if we try to hold on too much to our individual selves, you know, the relationship no longer exists. That's one of the biggest things you see in marriages. It, it, just as someone who's done a lot of uh, premarital counseling with people, this is one of the things that sticks the most. This is one of the things that gets in the way. But this isn't just marriages either. See this in friendships. You see this in uh, work relationships. It's all over the place. But here's the point. You know, I, I love those dialectics. Those, if you're in any kind of relationship with another human being, please use those. Consider them. But the point is how we engage these dialectics, you know, whether there's a bunch of options, right? You can alter your behavior and, and that will help you find a way through the contradiction to reach totality and practice and all of that. You can alternate between the dialectical uh, contradictions. So sometimes you choose openness, sometimes you choose connectedness or uh, closeness um, and you just kind of go back and forth. Another way you can do this is to deny or segment one side of the contradiction, so you're just going to pretend that separateness is no longer an option. I, you know, I don't like to be separated. I, I'm, we're just connected all the time. That's a way that you can handle that. Uh, all of the research factors does shows that doesn't work. But it's an option. Um, or you can develop methods to integrate or balance or accept the contradictions, right? Another option, you actually see this all the time, especially in... Uh, platonic relationships, you simply terminate the relationship so you don't have to deal with the contradictions. You know what I mean? Like, I'm experiencing this tension, building a head of steam, easiest way out, just end it. No more contradictions. That's an option, technically. How you choose to engage these, though, will determine the health and satisfaction of the relationship. Now, all of that, to me, 
fascinating to consider, right? How many spouses have lost many of their friends because of a poor handling of the connectedness and separateness dialectic? How often do you experience a desire for uh, privacy and like having your own space, yet also deeply need an openness with the other person? And, And honestly, the whole concept of a relationship feeling monotonous but then getting scarily uncertain as soon as something changes. Like, this is the world we live in, isn't it? But the main reason I wanted to look at this was because it shows how communication is the primary tool we use to manage conflict in our relationship. This, finally, brings us to conflict resolution. All right, consider all of that, the, the relational dialectic stuff. Consider that the appetizer. I, I was just setting the stage, intriguing the palate for the main course. But now that we have a bit of the context for conflict itself and, and why it's so intrinsic to relationships, we can get into the bulk of conflict resolution. And here's the deal. Conflict resolution is a great example of the intertwined dance of philosophy and ethics, theory and behavior. Because... At this point, you could just use your natural life experience to handle a given conflict with a spouse, a friend, a partner, a stranger, a coworker, whoever it is. And, you know, you might have garnered some pretty good experience over time and the conflict might find resolution. What is more likely, however, is that when a conflict inevitably arises in a relationship with another person, you are going to just be guessing at what to do. And successful mediation will be, at best, a stroke of luck. And at worst, it'll be socially and existentially destructive. You know, as we fumble our way through arguments, throw objects, spout off on social media, it, we just leave the future of said relationship in question. So if your self-confidence in reconciling conflict is high, you can go ahead, turn this off. Hopefully I'll one day make... Uh, an episode that pertains to you. If, however, you wouldn't mind being a little bit more informed to what is happening in a conflict resolution situation and how it should and should not work, if you are open to building up your toolbox, then let's dive in. And remember, at the center of all this is how you use communication, how you take ideas in your head and make them exist in the world where the relationship exists that's going to be central to all this. Now, there are four types of conflict. And, and these are just general categories. All right. So the first type is called active constructive. Active constructive, which is usually exemplified by like the use of voice. There's a sort of empowerment of the people involved. Uh, that, that's usually regarded as a good way to approach things. So you have active constructive, then you have active destructive, which has a sort of aggressive uh, aggressiveness to it, but it, it usually ends in an exit by one or both parties from the situation, okay, because it's destructive. Then on the other side, you have passive constructive, where, you know, one person prioritizes loyalty, usually at their own expense in the outcome, but the conflict goes away by one person being passive, And then you have passive destructive, where one or both persons simply neglect the conflict and allow it to linger 
Okay, so both of them are ignoring what's going on. It's that reactive approach that we talked about with, uh, you know, ignorance and, and possibly apathy in the previous episode. So as you can probably assume, active constructive is generally agreed on to be the most effective. Uh, but before we can get into how to do an active constructive approach, I want to look at the various styles of conflict and the management strategies that accompany them. So keep those four categories in mind, those four types of conflict uh, resolution. Uh, but, but let's look at some other details that are going on here. First, I want to begin with uh, the, this concept called dual concern. Whatever the type of conflict you are pursuing, there is this foundational assumption at play, and, and it's called dual concern. And this sort of exists on a spectrum where you have the concern for yourself on one side and the concern for the other or others, if it's a, if it's a group, on the other side. So high self-concern usually leads to assertiveness. Um, high other concern usually is described as the use of empathy. And so whether we're using uh, active constructive, active destructive, passive constructive, passive destructive, any of the strategies we're about to talk about are going to have some sort of combination of concern for self, concern for other. So let's, let's just look at the five most common conflict resolution strategies. Okay, hopefully you're able to see how these concerns frame the conflict and, and the environment of the mediation situation and, and maybe even think back to those uh, relational dialectic situations and go, uh, so how, which one of these do you tend to use when you find yourself in these? So strategy one, first one, avoidance. Avoiding conflict is almost a cultural trope these days but it's an actual strategy. So avoidance has low concern for the self. Okay, so you, you, you won't be active in asserting your desires. And it has a low concern for the other. Okay, so you are not active in fulfilling the other's desires. Psychologically, a conflict avoider uses reactive approaches to issues and seeks to simply neglect them or pretend they don't exist. So if they have low concern for the self and low concern for the other, what is taking up their concern to just make all of this go away? So it's a, it's instead of asserting the self, it's just trying to preserve the self, the relationship, but that's still described as a low concern because it's not going to actually be productive. It's not going to be constructive. All right. And the way this works is physically and mentally and emotionally, this person will remove themselves from the contradictions and issues in hopes that by withdrawing, the conflict's just going to magically disappear. And this is a very immediate uh, gratification approach because it will, it will actually work in the short term. However, with much dust under the rug, the conflict remains and the outcome is going to be a lose-lose. All right, so that's avoidance. Low self, low other, lose-lose. Wouldn't recommend this one. <clears throat> Strategy number two is called yielding. This one is also known as accommodating. You might see that used sometimes. Yielding happens when you suppress your experience and simply submit to the other 
especially if the other is a dominant type, which we'll, we'll see in the next strategy. So a yielder is taking on the role of peacemaker. And you might say, well, how is this different than avoidance? The reason is that this approach has low concern for the self, so it's not self-assertive, but it has high concern for the other. So a yielder, as opposed to a conflict avoider, a yielder is using empathy to satisfy the other's desires at the expense of their own. And this amounts to they win and you lose. There's also a chance that both people will yield. Okay, this can happen. Just like both people can avoid the conflict, both people can yield at the same time. So they're trying to appease the other uh, at their own expense. And there's, it kind of ends with like this slightly passive aggressive conversation of which comedians make fun of Midwesterners for. That, that, that's the yielding approach, all right? Strategy number three is called competitive. A competitive approach is most ev- evident by the use of force. And this is mostly rhetorical force. But this can certainly uh, occur with the use of physical force. Competitive, the competitive strategy happens when at least one person asserts themselves to dominate the other, and it makes for a high concern of the self and a low concern of the other. So it's kind of the opposite of yielding. These conflict situations are usually described as including the use of argument, right, or insults or power tactics, intimidation, anything where you can try to get the other to accept your views. So the goal is to satisfy your desires at the expense of theirs. And the outcome is you seek to win and in turn, they have to lose. You don't have to look too hard for an example on this. Uh, If you lived in America, pretty much all of 2020 is a case study for this approach. American politics itself and, and I think the resulting sociological landscape is founded on this principle. This is how we've been taught to function. And, you know, there's a bunch of philosophical arguments you can make for um, how we've been shaped as individualized versus collective. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, But this is dominant in our country. In fact, I think when most people think of conflict resolution, they think of this one. Now, there's still more strategies. That's not all. The fourth strategy is called conciliation. So, so far... Not a whole lot of positive perspectives here on the strategies. All the first three strategies, I would say, they're not generally recommended. But this strategy starts getting on to some improvement. Conciliation is best described as the process of compromise. Okay, we bargain in a way that has moderate concern for the self. Okay, so it's going to assert some desires but we'll give up some desires as well because of a moderate concern for the other. So this one looks to be fair for all sides with a mutual give and take. You know, in this situation, both parties kind of win. There's a hint that this strategy is a slight improvement over the others listed so far. But also, you can kind of tell, hopefully in my voice, There's still something missing from this. Conciliation, however, is also a way that people perceive um, conflict resolution, right? 
you're mostly competitive. And then, you know, if you actually go to a counselor or a mediator, you'll go, ah, I have to show up here now because the competitive thing didn't work. And now I need to compromise. That's conciliation. But that's only the fourth strategy. There's still one more. And the fifth strategy is called cooperation. Here, competition is off the table. Instead, those in conflict, as opposed to holding on to specific positions, they have to articulate their interest and use creative problem solving to integrate the desires of both parties. So cooperation has a high concern for the self and will assert self-interest, but also has a high concern for the other and actively engages in empathy to promote those interests just as much. And the goal of this strategy is a full-scale win-win. Now, interestingly, there is some yielding occurring here, right? The self can't assert to the point that it is at the expense of the other. So you got to yield a little bit. However, there's also a a posture of uh, mutual interdependence, which is generally a good approach to human existence. Just throw that out there. But in order to satisfy everyone involved to the greatest extent, each participant must be invested in themselves and in the other. Then the interests of all can be integrated with the hopes of finding some sort of collective agreement. And honestly, simply in the process of doing this, right, of, of trying to be cooperative, a sense of healing begins to manifest, right? I, I've seen this happen where both parties you know, when they take time to consider how this can be best for everyone, that mutual interdependence, at that point, you've already started to see the other in their full humanity. You've taken yourself into your full humanity alongside of this person. It's a good thing. I I just, I wish that this would be normal. Western society, at, at least from what I see, just doesn't tend to utilize this approach. Now in collectivist culture, so I, I brought up, there's People talk about the difference between individual cultures and collectivist cultures. In collectivist cultures, which America is not, they are more apt to engage with conflict this way. But even in collectivist cultures, you don't always find this strategy ubiquitous. Okay, While individualist cultures tend to uh, use the strategy of competition, collectivist cultures tend to use the strategy of avoidance or yielding because they function from a premise that they need to do what is best for society as a whole and hopefully that's also good for them uh individualistic cultures start with what is best for me maybe that will also be good for society so you got competition being the dominant form uh by one group and you have avoidance and yielding by the other so both of those cultures still have to be urged towards this uh cooperative approach um And that's the one, the cooperative, collaborative approach. That's the one that anyone who chooses, it's a difficult terrain because it's kind of hard. That's the one that's going to be the most helpful. Which seems like a good place to pause. We've hit most of the overarching approaches to conflict resolution, right? Understanding conflict, seeing why conflict is natural in relationships because of the dialectics and how communication is important to whatever direction the relationship will go. 
And we looked at the dual concern, the types, and the styles or strategies of conflict resolution. So now, I hope you can step back and consider how you approach conflicts. You know, what dialectics do you experience? And that can be with intimate relationships, that can be with uh, family relationships, that can be with strangers. Which dialectics do you often experience or do you notice? But also, in the conflicts that you've had, can you point to particular dialectics that spurred the issue? And generally, when you enter into situations of conflict, what strategy do you tend to use? What's your default? How, how have you understood how a conflict should be approached? And once we start paying attention to this, now we can do the hard work of healthily resolving the junk that plagues human interaction. Which means next time, today was a lot of theory, next time we'll look at particular models that have been proposed. And then we're going to look at some tips, some behaviors, some strategies to avoid, and some skills to utilize. So if this was all about the theory, setting that stage, getting you to think about how you approach things, next time is going to be about the practice. So we've got lots more to look at, but for now, may you find solace in the healthy potential that awaits those who take conflict resolution seriously.